The following audio is from Shady Grove Presbyterian Church in Rockville, Maryland. Our mission is to follow Jesus Christ and labor for his kingdom both in our area and around the world. For more information about Shady Grove Presbyterian Church, please follow us on Facebook and visit shadygrovepca.org. Well, I, I hope that sounded as beautiful uh, for those of you at home as it sounded here. Uh, thank you all for that special music. Um, we are continuing our series in Matthew this morning, looking at Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. And so I just want to go ahead and invite you uh, to take out your Bibles or your apps that will be on the screen in front of you, but would love for you to keep your Bible open um, as we're looking at this passage together. And uh, the topics we're looking at here, really denying ourselves, and loving our enemies. Um, of course, this is Sermon on the Mount, part of that series, but I think this text, uh, in light of the culture that we find ourselves in and the divisive nature of the culture that we find ourselves in, the cancel culture, the war on empathy, whatever you want to call it, um, I think this passage of text uh, is also really in line with some of the other passages we've been looking at recently, and I would invite you, uh, if you haven't been tuning in with us uh, for a while, uh, to go back maybe on our podcast and listen to our short uh, little mini-series through Romans 14 and 15 on Christian freedoms and liberties. I would also invite you to listen to uh, Charlie's sermon on Colossians 3 about putting on love. Um, I think those passages and then this text we're looking at this morning are just incredibly important for God's people right now to be reflecting on and to be truly praying and seeking uh, that the Lord would make us this kind of people. This kind of people who, in a world that is just graceless and filled with accusations and jumping to conclusions and assuming motives about others and guilt by association and, and all of this, you know, we're at each other's throats about every little thing. You know, what would it look like for God's people to be those who use their freedom for the sake of others, who are putting on love, which binds together in per- perfect harmony, and who are here loving to an extent, even to the extent of loving those who have wronged us, who we could say are our enemies. And what would it look like for God's people to be like that? I just want to put that on your heart this morning. It's been on my heart for the last several weeks, and I hope that this will be an encouraging, if not challenging time, as we study God's Word together. So let's read uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus said this, He said, you have heard heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? 
Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Gracious God, we again just ask that you would use this time in our hearts and that you would apply this text to our lives. And now more than ever, we need humility that only your Holy Spirit can bring, teachability that only your Holy Spirit can bring. We are such proud, arrogant, self-deceived people. And so we need you this, this morning, Lord, to cause us to sit under your text and to humbly apply it to our lives rather than sitting over it, thinking that we have the right to judge it and apply it for ourselves. So God, may you give the application and the increase in the teaching this morning, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Like many passages in the Sermon on the Mount, this passage is at least loosely known by anyone who is even remotely familiar with Christianity. Phrases like turn the other cheek or go the extra mile are common in our culture, and of course they come from this text that we're looking at this morning. And almost just as popular are Jesus' teachings and his instructions for his people to love their enemies. And no matter how familiar you may be with this passage or you may be with Christianity, I think many of us have a basic instinct of how to understand and apply this text. And I think for the most part, that basic instinct that we have is correct. In this passage, we discover how the Christian is to act toward his fellow man, and not just other Christians, but all human beings who are made in the image of God. We might say that this is a Christianity 101 passage. J.C. Ryle, the 19th century Anglican bishop, said that this passage is so important that the words deserve to be written in letters of gold. But anyone who has been a Christian for any length of time, knows that this, while this passage is simple in its instruction, it's equally as difficult in its lived application. The thrust of this passage, if you're looking at your Bible, comes in verse 47, where Jesus quite literally asks, what are you doing that is out of the ordinary? Or he, he, he's asking, is there anything remarkable about you? Is there anything about your life which can only be explained by your relationship with Jesus Christ? Is there anything about your life that can only be explained by the gospel of grace? Or is your life, are you, just like everyone else? There's a teaching here for all of us this morning, and so I'm trusting God's Spirit to do the work of applying it to our hearts in these difficult and divided times. We're going to be breaking up this passage into two parts, uh, the two paragraphs here that you have. And so what I, want to see this, what I want us to see this morning is that Jesus is making it clear to us that to be a Christian, uh, you must first deny yourself, you must first deny yourself, and you must love your enemies. So deny yourself and love your enemies. Now, and many of your Bibles, verses 38 to 42, likely have a heading that uses the idea of retaliation to describe this section. Retaliation is certainly one of the concepts that Jesus addresses here, but the teaching is much deeper than that. 
Because really what Jesus is getting at here is this question, um, how do you conceive of yourself? How do you value yourself? Are you consumed with yourself, with your rights, with your possessions, with your reputation? Or have you begun to take a back seat in your own life by denying yourself, putting Christ first, putting others second, sometimes at great personal cost to yourself? In verse 38, Jesus begins by saying, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Today we call this the legal principle of lex talionis, and it exists to make sure that the punishment fits the crime. It's to set a limit to make sure that we don't go above and beyond in punishing those who have done wrong, but instead that our punishment fits the crime, that it's just, doesn't exceed the offense. This principle is laid down three times in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. And in two of those three places, this principle is explicitly given to the judges of society, the judges who are responsible for legally and righteously and justly administering God's justice. And so in response to this principle, Jesus says that we ought not to resist the one who is doing evil. Well, what is he getting at here? Well, there was likely uh, two problems going on in Jesus' day. Uh, First, the first problem was that people thought that because they had the right to take someone to court meant that they should take someone to court. They thought that they had, because they had the right to exercise an eye for an eye, that they must exercise an eye for an eye. Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians 6, this quick reflex to take someone to court in order to get what belongs to me, or in order to make sure that they would get what is coming to them. So that was likely the first problem. The second problem was that people wanted to take justice into their own hand, taking it upon themselves to be judge and jury. We call this sort of the tit-for-tat retribution. You did this to me, so now I'm going to do this to you. And I don't have to go through the legal process. I can punish you myself. And of course, we see both of these impulses alive and well today. As we said earlier, we are living in what is commonly called now the cancel culture. The cancel culture is this graceless society where its citizens daily take an eye for an eye into their own hands. Not only that, but we regularly exceed this principle in our practice. Entire families and lifelong friendships today are dissolving because someone says one wrong thing. You said what? Canceled. You agree with who? Canceled. You're done. We are done. Our relationship is done. I learned a new word this week. That word was a suicide. The idea being that we make, we're so quick right now to make assumptions about other people that we, we're murdering people in our hearts with the assumptions that we make. Isn't that true for you? I know it's true for me. Scrolling through social media and making quick assumptions about other people because they said this or they didn't say that or they didn't qualify with this or they supported this or they shared this article. We're killing people in our hearts because of the judgments that we're making about one another. This week I sat back and I watched as we canceled one another 
based on whether or not you would eat a can of Goya black beans. Black beans. We're at each other's throats because you'll keep adobo seasoning in your cupboard or not. If you had told me that that's where we would be six months ago, I would have laughed at you, but here we are. I think Jesus' teaching here is very relevant for us today. You see, Jesus isn't revoking a legal principle so much as he is saying, I don't want you to be so preoccupied with yourself, with your reputation, with your honor, with your possessions, with your rights. Rather than thinking about how you might execute justice or how you might get revenge, he wants you instead to think about how you might extend mercy and grace. We'll look real quickly at these four examples that he gives here in a second, but I want to be careful to qualify what I'm saying here because Jesus is not saying that you should be unconcerned about justice. He is not saying that you should not seek justice. He's not saying that if you're in an abusive situation that you should just roll over and take it and turn the other cheek. He's not saying anything of the sort. There are times when Jesus would have us address faults and wrongs, such as his instructions in Matthew 18, when someone sins against us, we're to go to that person, and he kind of gives this escalating order that could eventually lead to excommunication from the church if someone doesn't repent. Or think again, when Jesus himself, when he was on trial in John 18, someone slapped him on the cheek, and he did not simply turn the other cheek, but he protested, and he said, if I have spoken wrong, bear witness to what is wrong, but if what I have said is right, why do you strike me? So what is the principle then? Jesus is telling us not to be so greatly concerned with personal insults, with personal defense, with personal rights, and taking matters into our own hands. But Scripture is elsewhere clear that when it is a matter of justice or righteousness, then we must be concerned. Uh, Dr. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a 20th century pastor, wrote a wonderful long book on the Sermon on the Mount, and commenting on this passage, I think he has a great uh, clarification of this that was really helpful for me. He said this, he said, if we believe that a particular law includes injustices, then in the name of justice, not for our own personal feelings, not for our own private gain, let us try to change the law. But let us be certain, however, that our interest in the change is never personal and selfish, but that it is always done in the interest of justice and truth and righteousness. End quote. We could summarize perhaps by saying then that maybe what Jesus is getting to at root is our motives. What is motivating you in seeking justice or in seeking action to someone who has wronged you? Is it personal vengeance? Is it protecting your reputation? Is it protecting your possessions? Is it being, is it being right or protecting and exercising your rights? Or is it a true concern for justice and righteousness? Jesus taught in Matthew 16 that if anyone would follow him, they must deny themselves and take up their cross. Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it, he said. So to exercise what Jesus is talking about here in this passage, we must 
deny ourselves and lose our life. We must lose our life, even in our little heartfelt secret assumptions and judgments that we make about others. So Jesus gives four quick illustrations to apply this principle, and I hope you'll see quickly how this goes much deeper deeper than what we commonly think of as just retaliation. In four illustrations, he applies this principle to personal vengeance, legal matters, generosity towards those who have wronged us, and mercy towards those who ask. So first, personal vengeance, turn the other cheek, right? The illustration is plain. If someone personally wrongs you, what is your response? J.C. Ryle said that what Jesus is describing here is our readiness to resent injuries and a quickness to take offense. Would others describe you as that in that way? It's a readiness to resent injuries and a quickness to take offense. Would they describe you as reactionary or impulsive in your responses toward others? But all of this is contrary to the mind of Christ. As Peter said in our reading this morning, Christ himself did not revile in return. He did not threaten in return, but continued to entrust himself to his Father who judges justly. We ought to be so unconcerned about our honor and reputation that we're willing to indulge the offender further by turning the other cheek. So what about you? Do you trust God with your honor, with your reputation, when someone wrongs you? Or do you want to react and take matters into your own hands? So personal vengeance. Second, legal matters. Here, this illustration of uh, suing for the cloak has to do with a legal setting. In Jesus' culture, uh, you could sue someone for their inner garment, but what was protected by law was the outer garment. Why? Because if you take someone's inner garment and then their outer cloak, what would that mean? That would mean they're naked. On top of that, the outer cloak would have doubled as a poor man's bedding. And so in Exodus 22, we see this protection. Exodus 22 says that if you take a man's cloak, you must return it before nightfall because it's the man's only covering. So I think this is a hyperbolic, almost humorous example that Jesus is giving here. What he's essentially saying is you should be so unconcerned about your rights that you'd be willing to get naked to serve others. So quite a visual. Jesus is addressing our preoccupation, and perhaps we could even say our obsession with our rights. Would you be willing to voluntarily surrender your rights for the sake of others? We'll talk about this more in a moment, but the end that Jesus has in mind, if you remember sort of where we're going in this text, the end that Jesus has in mind is that we ought to demonstrate love not just for our neighbors, those whom we like, but even for those who have wronged us, those who we could say are our enemies. It's when we love our enemies that Christ's love is most visible in us. So personal vengeance, legal matters. Third, generosity towards those who have wronged us. And I think we can safely apply this to a wide range of situations. Any, whether it's uh, someone who has wronged us in the workplace, like a dehumanizing boss who is making us work oppressively long hours right now, or perhaps even an oppressive government who we think is going above and beyond and trampling on our freedoms and on our rights. 
In the case of this illustration, Jesus uses a common practice of the Roman military who could ask citizens to carry equipment for them at any place and at any time. And rather than protesting, rather than complaining that it's just not fair, rather than getting on Facebook and complaining that this Roman soldier made me carry their pack for a mile, Jesus wants us to go above and beyond, to be kind courteous and generous. Okay, you asked me to go a mile, I'll go too. See, because here's the thing. People who are asking unfair and unjust things of us likely know, likely know that they're exercising a privilege or that they're sort of uh, using their power over you. And they expect, some people even thrive, right, on the protest, on the response, on the complaint. And in the face of such a situation, Jesus wants us to be the kind of people who don't respond with complaining or grumbling, protesting. Said to say, okay, what more would you have me do? I want to be careful here. I don't want to get into trouble or anything like that. But let's think about this this cultural moment that we find ourselves in. I know many of us, we don't, we don't like the restrictions right now. We don't like the restrictions that are being placed on us. But what would it look like for us to be the kind of people who go above and beyond in compliance instead of those who complain? You know, Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 8 and 9, this for a missional, for a missional reason to become like the people around us, that we might win some, right? To become like all, that we might win some. Are we willing to become, you know, what people want to do to have these restrictions? Are we willing to comply so we might win some? Or are we just concerned about our rights? We all have to apply this, I know, to our own hearts and lives. And I want to be careful here, and I trust that you will take time to meditate on this further. So, personal vengeance, legal matters, generosity towards those who wrong us or have been unfair to us, and then finally, mercy to those who ask. Here the illustration is when someone in need begs from you or asks to borrow from you, Jesus says not to refuse such a person. He's not telling us to give exactly what is asked. You may not be in a position to give the borrower borrower what they're asking for, or it may not be wise to give the person what they're asking for but you can still give. It might only be a a word of encouragement or a word of prayer, but you can still give. And so what Jesus is getting at here is, are you quick to recoil when someone asks of your time or your money or your possessions? Or are you moved to mercy and compassion? I came across a great example, I think, of of this passage, of this teaching recently, and it's from the life, not the teaching, but from the life of uh, Dr. Tim Keller, the pastor in New York. We quote him around here pretty often. Um, You'll never hear him talk about this, uh, but one of his protégés, Scott Sauls, talks about this in his recent example, uh, or his recent book, A Gentle Answer, which is a great book and would just encourage you to read it. Uh, It just came out, and it is great for, again, our cultural moment right now. Um, But Scott Sauls tells of this situation that Keller found himself in a few years ago. Keller was offered a prestigious award at Princeton Seminary. Uh, He was scheduled to come and accept it, and the award was because of 
um, the impact he was making, his, his teaching and, uh, he was making for, you know, in the church. And uh, Princeton Seminary now, of course, it used to be a very um, orthodox, conservative institution. It's now a very progressive uh, institution. And so when the campus, when the students found out that Keller was going to receive this award, they wanted to cancel him, right? And so they protested. And they wanted to cancel him primarily because of his evangelical beliefs on marriage, on um, gender, and gender roles, right? And so the seminary gave in, and they took the award back, and they gave it to somebody else. And you never heard a peep of protest from Keller. But on top of that, soon after, the seminary had the audacity to come back and ask Keller to give a speech at the very same event where he was going to receive the award, but now someone else was going to get the award. And you know what? He agreed. He agreed to come and give a speech. Now, why was he able to do that? I mean, think about it. In your workplace, if you were going to get an award for something, and then coworkers, I don't like this. This person doesn't represent our our, our ethics because Christian and they believe this and they took the award away from you. But then they came back and wanted you to maybe introduce the person getting the award or give a speech. Would you do it? Why was Keller able to do that? Because for him, getting another opportunity to proclaim Jesus was far better than making a stink about how he had been wronged. To complain about how he was being treated unfairly. The summons here in this passage is for each of us to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones summarized it this way. He said, No man can practice what our Lord illustrates here unless he has finished with himself, with his rights to himself, with his right to determine what he shall do, and especially must he finish with what we commonly call the rights to the self. In other words, we must not be concerned about ourselves at all. The whole trouble in life, as we have seen, is ultimately this concern about self. What our Lord is saying and teaching here is that it is something of which we must rid ourselves of entirely. Most of the unhappiness and sorrow and most of our troubles in life and in experience arise from this ultimate origin and source, the self. End quote. So how can we do this? How can we find the strength and the ability to deny ourselves and to follow Christ. Well, the the cross of Christ is, of course, the supreme example and where our power comes from. If we say that we believe Jesus has died for our sins, then one of our greatest desires should be to die to ourself. Because Christ did not merely die so that we might be forgiven or saved from hell, as mind-blowing and as amazing as that is, but he died so that we might be formed into a new humanity, a new creation, and a new kingdom. He died for all, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, that those who live in him might no longer live for themselves, but live for him who for their sake died and was raised. What does it look like to live for Christ? It means to be obedient to all of his teaching, including really difficult passages like this. That is the life to which we are called. Not a life of self-defense, of sensitivity, of protection, of vengeance, of obsession with the self, but a life where Christ and his kingdom is at the center. 
And this has profound implications for us, and that it changes not only how we conceive of ourselves, but it also transforms our love toward others. So we're looking at verses 43 through 48 now. Loving our enemies. Because much of what we have said so far is possible even if one is not a Christian. I mean, think about it. Right? Buddhism, for example, at its foundation strongly teaches a principle of self-denial. And many people in this world, might have been hard for them, might have been difficult, but they have made a habit of self-denial, right? of denying the self. But that is not enough for those who follow Christ. It's not enough to just deny self, and it's not enough simply to not hate other people, right? It's not enough that you simply not hate other people. Jesus is pressing upon us to go even deeper to the core of who we are, to our motives, to our heart. It's not enough simply to deny ourselves. It's not enough simply to not hate other people. But we must be deeply moved in our spirit by a genuine love for others. And friends, this makes all the difference in the world. It is the difference between an artist and a person who can only mechanically follow an artist's directions. An artist is moved by something that swells up from deep inside of them. Someone like me, on the other hand, the best I can do is follow the directions to connect the dots. Jesus wants his people to be artists in love. Move from their very core with a passionate and unfailing love for others, even for those who have wronged them for their enemies. What's interesting is that Jesus begins again, as he has now done several times by this phrase, you know, you have heard that it was said. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Well, you're not going to find that anywhere in the Bible. You'll find the first part, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy is not to be found anywhere in any text of the Bible. So we have here a clear teaching of how the religious teachers of Jesus' day had manipulated this teaching and twisted it from its true intention to be exclusive towards others. Jesus corrects this false teaching by saying that our neighbor must include, our neighbor must include not only those that we like, not only those who have done good to us, but even our enemies even those who have wronged us, even those who have persecuted us. It's very easy to love someone that we like, right? It's easy to love someone that we like. And that being the case, maybe we, maybe we don't understand what love really is. Dr. King said it's a good thing that Jesus' command isn't for us to like everyone. His command is for us to love everyone here's the deal. You're not going to like everybody. You're not going to like everybody. People are going to rub you the wrong way. Personality is going to rub you the wrong way. He's not asking you to like everyone. He's asking you to love everyone. He's commanding that we love everyone. You see, love is not simply our passive, passive posture or disposition towards others. It's active. It's our active behavior toward others. It must be active. True love seeks the good of others even when they're our enemy, even when they've wronged us. 
Justin Gibney is an attorney and an author, and he says this wonderfully. He says, part of taking the great commandment seriously is realizing that love is more than a feeling or a sentiment. Love is substantive and active. Loving our neighbors is not the same as simply not hating them. In the biblical sense, love is not a lack of hate or of anything else. Love has form and content as described in Scripture, and it compels us to act. This love is rooted in the love of God. You see how Jesus says this here uh, in verses 43 to 48. He says, God makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Our God is gracious and kind towards all people. He blesses all people in many ways indiscriminately. The love of God is a love that gives of itself in order to help and strengthen those who are in need. And we see this in the way that God gives life and breath and blessing even to those who curse and deny him. And we see this in how he has given love and grace and forgiveness even to his people who regularly sin against him. And so where then is our likeness to our Father in heaven if we cannot show mercy and kindness to everybody as Jesus asks? You see, where is the evidence that you are a new creation if you lack love and charity for those who have wronged you? That's the force of the question. Because anybody can do good to those whom they like or to those who have done good to them, but it's only the Christian who can be moved from a deep inner place of the heart to have love, mercy, and compassion on those that they do not like, on those who have even hurt or wronged them. I hope you can feel the weight of this. How different would our world be if more Christians were like this? J.C. Ryle said there are two lessons which we must take away from these ten verses, and I'm going to summarize now what he said. He said, first, that if these ten verses were truly lived out by believers, we would recommend Christianity to the world far more than we do now. It is our attention to this passage which makes our religion beautiful. It is the neglect of this passage which makes our religion deformed. The world can understand courtesy, kindness, tenderness, and compassion— even if it cannot understand our doctrine. So first, we would recommend Christianity to the world far more than we do. Second, he said, if more Christians actually lived out these verses, how much happier would our world be? True Christian religion promotes peace, charity, kindness, and goodwill among all men and women. The more people who are brought under this teaching by the power of the Holy Spirit, the more there will be who genuinely love and the happier the world will become. So here's where we get to the thrust of this teaching. Verse 47. You see, anyone can make a habit out of denying themselves. Some people are really good at it. And anyone can do good to people that they like. So if that's all you can say about yourself, Jesus is asking us in verse 47, what more are you doing than others? Quite literally, he is asking, if that's the case, What is remarkable about you? Are you doing anything that is out of the ordinary? Can your life, can our church, 
can it only be explained by the gospel of grace and our relationship with Jesus Christ? Or are we just like everyone else? And so as you examine yourself, as you look at your life in detail, is there something about it which can only be explained by the gospel that cannot be explained in ordinary terms? Is there a more than about your life, something remarkable, something extraordinary about your life because of your relationship with Jesus Christ? Or have we become just like the world around us? Brothers and sisters, I hope you can agree with me that in this world, what do we need more than Christians like this? Christians who take the love and the message of Christ out into a divided and angry and cancel culture world and who can not only deny themselves but who can put others first, who can love others with great compassion and empathy. Hope you'll agree with me that we all need to do some more meditation on this text. And if you're tuning into this message this morning and you do not know Christ, if you have not confessed your faith in Christ, put your faith in him, let me just ask you, why wouldn't you want to? Why wouldn't you want to have your sins forgiven, as amazing as that is, but also receive the promise that God is going to make you into the kind of person that will make this world happier? Why wouldn't you want to be that kind of person? Why wouldn't you want to be made perfect as our God in heaven is perfect? If you have any questions about that, what it looks like to be a Christian, to become a Christian, to put your faith in Christ, I just want to invite you to reach out to me. Email me, ben at shadygrovepca.org. Ben at shadygrovepca.org. Let's talk about it. Let's set up a time to talk about what it looks like to follow Christ. And for those beloved who are listening right now, who have put their faith in Christ, let me remind you that our God is at work in you, making you perfect. He is perfecting you. He is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure to make you more like this. And so continue entrusting yourself to him just as Christ did. And remember that these commandments are not burdensome. They are a joy to strive to keep and follow because we know that God loved us even when we were his enemies. So may we go and do the same. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray with this challenging text that you would apply it to our hearts and our lives and cause us to become more conformed into the image of Christ and to become more like you, perfected in love just as you are perfect. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.